It's wonderful to see all of you gathered here today to worship our great God and Savior. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We're nearing the end of this letter. Next week, Lord willing, will be our last week in 2 Peter. And we're probably moving on to Jude. Uh, we're at the end of the book and indeed the end of all things, as we'll see in this passage. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13, let's hear God's word together. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the renewal that you have already begun in our lives. Through the shed blood of your son Jesus, you have washed us of our guilt, claimed us as your children, and through the work of your Holy Spirit, you are renewing us after the image of your son. We thank you, Lord, for this renewal and the gift of the Spirit. But we thank you also that one day our salvation uh, will reach its fulfillment when your son Jesus returns. Oh, Father, put in our hearts a deeper yearning and longing for that day. Grant us to live in the light of the return of the King. And grant us as we wait to put aside the old patterns of life, the impurity, the sin, the rebellion, and grant us, energized by your spirit and truth, to walk in increasing holiness and godliness, O oh God. This is what we desire, to be more like Jesus as we await the coming of your Son. Heavenly Father, we can do nothing in our own strength, but you are mighty and you use your word to accomplish your purposes. And so we pray that you would work in our midst today. We pray that your word would sanctify us, making us like Jesus. Uh, we pray that your word would stir our affections, putting in us a holy longing for Christ's return. And Father, we pray that you would use your powerful word to draw the dead to life. There are those in this place this morning who don't know Jesus as their Savior, we ask that you would act and draw them to yourself. Amen. 
What are you looking forward to in this season of your life? As you look to the future, what fills you with delight as you contemplate this good thing that's coming your way? You can tell a lot about a person based on what they hope for, based on what they look forward to. Some people look forward to the weekend. This one just passed, but the next one's coming. We look forward to vacations. Parents look forward to the birth of their children. We look forward to promotions at work. Students look forward to the day when they will finish their degree and be done with school. Others look forward to retirement. What do you look forward to? What brings you delight as you contemplate it in the present? What is crucial for Christians to contemplate and find delight in is the return of Jesus. When you think about the coming of Jesus Christ right now where you are, the king is coming back. Does that do anything for you? Does it move you? Does it fill your heart with delight? Do you look forward to the coming of the king the way you look forward to, say, your vacation? The weekend? Whatever? As Christians, we are meant to live with the future always in front of us. Jesus is coming back. And that great future reality is meant to shine its light on the present, and we are meant to live always in light of the future. makes all the difference if you do. Uh, 2 Peter 3, the passage we're looking at, is one of the, the passages in the New Testament that describes the second coming of our Lord with um, significant detail. It's one of the crucial passages on the return of Jesus. And we're going to note three things as we look at it this morning. Number one, scoffers are wrong, judgment day is coming. The scoffers are wrong, says Peter, judgment day is coming. Verses one through seven. Number two, the Lord's delay is explained. The Lord's delay is explained, verses 8 through 9. And finally, Peter tells us how we should live in view of that day. How we should live in view of that day, verses 10 through 13. So in the first seven verses, Peter shows us that the scoffers who deny that Christ is coming back, that there is in fact a day of judgment, uh, he affirms uh, that these scoffers who deny these things are out of step with reality, out of touch with reality, and he refutes them. But he begins by reminding his readers why he's writing to them. He's already written them a letter. He's writing again, and he's doing so to stimulate their wholesome thinking, right thinking, through remembrance of important things. Uh, as often as we need to be taught something new about Scripture, we need to be reminded of things that we've already come to know, perhaps more often than learning something new. We need to be reminded of what we've already come to know about God and His ways. One basic way to love your brother and sister is not simply to share something new, although that's helpful, but to remind them of the things that both of you hold in common and help them to apply it to a new situation where they're perhaps tempted to forget. Do what Peter is doing. Stir up your brothers and sisters to an obedient life by reminding them of the truth. And what he reminds them of is the fact that scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffers are another, is another way of describing the false teachers whom he has been criticizing, castigating in the previous chapter. These are scoffers. Uh, scoffers deny essential truths of the Christian faith, and one weapon in their arsenal is ridicule. Ridicule can be an effective weapon to shut down conversation, to silence opponents, to create doubts in other people. And by the way, if you're proud and you really need the admiration of the, and approval of the people around you, you are going to be especially susceptible to being manipulated by ridicule. 
because you don't like to be made fun of. One way not to be susceptible to scoffing is not to care what people think, but to care what God thinks. Notice these scoffers are going to come in the last days. When you see that phrase, last days in Scripture, what do you think of when you hear that phrase? Many people, when they come across that phrase, last days, think of a, a narrow window of time, narrow strip of time just before Christ returns. But actually, the New Testament writers frequently use the phrase last days to describe the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So Peter lives in the last days where there are scoffers. Every subsequent generation of believers after Peter lives in the last days. We live in the last days. Part of the reason he describes it like that, this final era of salvation is described as the last days, is because there is only one thing left for God to do, namely come back. Salvation has reached its culmination in Jesus Christ. It has been accomplished. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, rose again, reigns in heaven. Salvation has been accomplished. Now God is drawing his people to himself. And we are awaiting one more decisive divine act in the unfolding of salvation, and that's the return of the king. So we live in the last days. And these last days are characterized by the arrival of scoffers who ridicule and deny important truths of the faith. And what they're denying in Peter's day, specifically, is the reality of a final judgment and the second coming. That Jesus will come back at the end of history and shake things up. Where is the promise of his coming, they ask? Where is it? Things have been going on the same way since the fathers died. The patriarchs, Jacob and Abraham. Since they were on the scene, things have unfolded in exactly the same way. There has been an unbroken succession of years. Where's his coming? We've been waiting for God to show up for a long time. He hasn't come. It's not going to happen. There is a kind of plausibility to their skepticism. We're not careful. It's easy to look at the familiar rhythms that we experience. We wake up, we go to bed, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the seasons come, the seasons go. Uh, one day is like the last. And we can be lulled into this sense of this, this is the way things are. This is the way things will always be. And it adds an air of unreality to the idea that God will decisively, at the end of history, break in and overthrow the present order of things. You can be hypnotized by the sense of familiarity, the ordinary rhythms of life. And Peter dispels that spell of the familiar, uh, and he refutes the false teachers by noting the fact that they're overlooking something. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. They're overlooking the fact that there was a time when creation was not, and God acted decisively to bring that which did not exist into existence. And by the way, that language of the earth being formed out of water doesn't mean that the earth was made up of water. Water is not the element uh, used to create the earth. He's, uh, Peter's drawing on the Genesis 1 account of creation, and the picture here is of the earth emerging from the midst of the waters, something like this. They forget that God acted decisively in creation, but more importantly, for Peter's purposes, they forget that things actually have not gone on as they were at 
creation. It's one of their arguments. Things have continued on the same way since creation. Peter says, have they? What you're forgetting is the flood. God has already acted in history to pour out his judgment upon the wicked. The world, the ancient world that then existed was engulfed in water. That primordial watery chaos was, uh, it filled the earth. And only Noah and his family were rescued. You're forgetting the fact that God has already, in history, already judged the world. The ancient world was wiped out through the flood. God has done that then. He has wiped out the wicked then in a cosmic act of judgment. And what he did in history, he is going to do again at the end of history. The day is coming when Jesus Christ will return, and this created order will be incinerated. There is a cosmic inferno, verse 7, that will be unleashed on creation. And this present order of things will come tumbling down. He will do in the future what he has done in the past. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. God is storing up this present creation, this present order of things for a cataclysmic conflagration. Massive cosmic inferno at the end of the age. Uh, these things are, are being kept for that day. And it, it's going to be a day not just of cosmic upheaval, but a day of judgment, verse 7. The destruction of the ungodly. This will be a day where every human being is going to be held accountable to his and her creator. And we will give an account for every thought, word, and deed. This will be a day of judgment, a day of misery and ruin for those who reject God and despise him. The most important question that we can ask this morning is, are we ready for that day? Are you ready for that final day of judgment when Christ will return, when the heavens will melt and all things will be laid bare? Are you prepared to face God? If you don't have Jesus as your Savior this morning, let me say emphatically that you are not ready for that day. You are not prepared to face that judgment. That will be a day of ruin, misery, and condemnation for you. Sometimes I, I look at the individuals involved in reality TV shows, and I, and I wonder how they do it, uh, to be followed around incessantly by people with cameras that capture their every word and deed. I don't know how you'd get anything done. I don't know how you could be self-forgetful when you've got someone just stalking your every step with a camera. Some people do it. Imagine for a moment that the last month of your life was a kind of reality TV show where somebody walked everywhere you went with a camera next to you, and they captured every word, every thought, every gesture. And suppose also they had the technology to capture that inner monologue, you know, the things we say to ourselves that we wouldn't dare to say to anybody else. Suppose that there was a transcript that captured all of that, uh, all of what happens in your inner life. And all the images that are generated by your mind, suppose those could be viewed on screen. And suppose there was an auditorium full of people who watched your life for the last month and read that transcript of your thought and, and uh, saw the things that you were thinking about. What would you do? You'd be horrified. You know, you'd change your name, you'd leave. Uh, we shudder at the, the prospect of doing that. And, and this is interesting because these are people who, by and large, are like us. 
and we tremble at their gaze, at their seeing us for what we really are. Now imagine on the last day, when every secret is laid bare before the all-seeing eyes of God, how, how we will feel. All pretensions of being good and decent people will fall away. It will be seen for the facade that it is, and we will know then, what we ought to really know now, that we are sinners in need of forgiveness and redemption. Without Jesus, that, that is a day of judgment, condemnation, for those who have not been washed of their guilt and sin. Without Jesus, you're not ready to face that day. But the good news of Scripture is that God, through His Son, has acted to save us from the judgment to come, the wrath to come, as the Gospels put it. At the cross, Jesus Christ was engulfed in, the, in that final inferno. He was th thrown into the firestorm that the wicked will face. At the cross, the accumulated guilt of a lifetime was put on his shoulders, and he endured, as it were, the final judgment in our place. He paid the full price of our sins and rose again triumphantly, such that all those who trust in him are pardoned of all of their guilt and sin and have peace with God. If you're trusting in Jesus today, that final conflagration, that final judgment, when all of the things will be decisively disrupted by the intervention of Jesus Christ, that day needs to have no terror for you. Jesus has taken your condemnation upon himself, your judgment upon himself. It is gone. That day for God's people is a day of relief, as we'll see. If you're trusting in Jesus today, you are ready to face that day. It will be a day not of destruction and misery, but of joy. Mark Dever is a Baptist preacher in Washington, D.C., in one of his sermons, tells the story of this meteor shower in 1833. Remarkable meteor shower. Uh, one observer described it this way. Well, we're told that he never saw snowflakes thicker in a storm than there were meteors in the sky at some moments. Now, having grown up in Phoenix, I don't know exactly. It took me a, a moment to go, what, would, what might it look like to have thick snowflakes falling? That's a foreign experience. Uh, but snowflakes in a storm were not thicker than the meteors that were showering in the night sky. People were falling on their faces thinking it was the end of the world. Uh, there's no indication that any of them actually hit the earth. But there's an account of a young boy who was very much frightened in that moment going to his mother and saying, Oh, mother, the world is coming to an end. The stars are falling. Startled from her sleep, she rushed to the window and said, Thank God. I am ready. When the Lord appears, when this present creation is shaken, the mountains are thrust into the sea, will you be able to say, praise God, I'm ready. If today you're trusting in Jesus, praise God, you're ready. Second thing uh, Peter goes on to demonstrate or to explain is why this coming of the Lord seems delayed. Why is it taking so long to get here? Uh, look at verse 8. The first thing he says is you need to understand that our measure of time is not God's measure of time. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. It's drawing on Psalm 90. God's relationship to time isn't ours. A thousand years for God, it's a blip. It's a day that has passed for us. 
So don't assume because by your standard of measurement, God is moving slowly, that he's moving slowly. God knows when he needs to act, when the time is ripe for action. He is neither too slow or too quick. Trust the timing of God, even when it seems slow. He does all things well. The problem with the scoffers is that they are foisting onto God human standards of judgment, human standards of what the appropriate timing is, and not recognizing that God is God and we are not. He's outside of time as it is conceived by human beings. It's the first error that they're making, using human standards, applying them to God and saying, based on our standards, he's slow. Wrong standard. It's God's standards that judge us, never the other way around. The second prong of his argument is that, yeah, in a sense, God is delaying, but why is he delaying? Because he's patient. Once that day comes and Christ returns, there is no more opportunity to repent. At that time, judgment has come, and every person will give an account for their life before the Creator. God delays the coming of Jesus, however. Why? Because he's merciful and patient, and he wants sinners to come to him and find salvation before judgment arrives. There is a kind of delay. Thank you. Uh, There is a kind of delay. Uh, But the delay is not because God is slow. It's because he's good. It's because he's patient. Uh, He wants sinners to come to him. What is God up to during this time between Christ's first coming and second coming? He is drawing lost sinners to himself through the witness of the church. That's what God is up to in the world. Indeed, even the second coming is in a sense delayed so that more and more people would hear the good news about Jesus and be brought in. Now, if that's God's priority, it should be our priority. If God cares about the lost, then so should we. If we want to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father, then we need to be concerned about all of the people around us who don't know Jesus as their Savior. And we need to be seeking means, whatever means, to to point them to Jesus and help them to find the salvation that we've come to know. Is this a concern for you? Is God's concern about the lost reflected in your life? I'm not even asking right now in the first instance, are you sharing the gospel with non-Christians? We'll get to that. You should. I'm just asking, is there any evidence in your life that you are concerned for those who are perishing? Do you ever pray, for instance, for people who don't know Jesus to come to know him? Do you ever take initiative to invite such people into your home or grab lunch with them? Do you use your time, energy, gifts to help these people come to know Jesus Christ? Is there any evidence, any inkling in your life that God's heart for the lost is also your heart? If not, that should trouble us. And frankly, all of us need to be less complacent in this area and care more about the things that God cares about. Start by praying for people. Make it a point every day of the week. Start praying for for someone who doesn't know Jesus in your life. And yes, not all of us are evangelists. Admittedly, some are better at this than others. That's true. But all of us can do a, you know, there's a baseline competence that we can all achieve, can't we? Even in our own limited ways. Share Jesus with other people. That might be their only chance to hear about the Savior. One obstacle to this is the fear of embarrassment, isn't it? We don't want to be the people who create social awkwardness. Well, two, two things to think about when you're intimidated by the fear of social awkwardness. Number one, so what? Assume the worst case scenario happens and there's a little bit of social embarrassment. Okay. 
And consider what's at stake. Okay, a little bit of social embarrassment. For what purpose? So that an immortal soul would find salvation through Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good trade-off, right? Who says you should never be embarrassed? Sometimes that's a price you should be willing to pay, right? Especially given the stakes. Second thing to consider, assume the roles were reversed. That this person who doesn't know Jesus knew Jesus, and you didn't know Jesus. How would you want them to treat you? Like you you'd want them to take all kinds of winsome risks, right? You'd want them to risk social embarrassment and awkwardness for the sake of bringing you the truth about Jesus Christ. You'd want them to love you. So love them the way you would want them in your position to love you. The bottom line is this. God's at work drawing sinners to himself. That's his heart. That's his priority, and it should be ours. When you take the time to share Jesus with someone who doesn't know Jesus, and you walk away from that conversation, you feel alive. You feel like, finally, I'm doing something with my life that's worth doing. I don't always have that feeling that I've done, you know, I've, th- these two hours were well spent, but man, those two hours were well, well spent. God cares about the loss. The day is postponed, if you like, that more and more people might hear, and that should be our passion as well. Number three, Peter teaches us how we ought to live in light of the return of Jesus. Verse 10, he gives us another depiction of that day. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning it will come suddenly and unexpectedly. Jesus can come back anytime, which means we always need to be ready. Jesus can come back tomorrow. He can come back in an hour. We need to live in a place of spiritual preparation. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. This present creation will melt and be incinerated. This present order will come to an end. That's where human history is headed. How should we live in light of that? Well, the first thing we should do in light of that is live lives of holiness and godliness. Verse 11, all these things are thus to be dissolved. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness means that your lifestyle is distinct from and separate from the world around you and reflects the moral purity of God. To be holy means that you reflect God's moral purity more and more. Godliness refers to a profound reverence for God that stamps everything that you do, your speech, your thoughts, your actions, what the Old Testament describes as the fear of the Lord. Those who recognize that Jesus is coming again are spiritually awake and ready. They're walking in reverence for God, submitting all of life to him. They are distinct from the world around them. We prepare ourselves for that day by cultivating holiness and conformity to the character of Jesus. What this means practically is that we put off the old ways of life that characterized us before we came to know Jesus. Uh, We put off contempt for other people the selfish pursuit of our own interests at the expense of others, an unwillingness to forgive those who wrong us, sexual impurity, living a life controlled by our appetites rather than principle. We put all of that aside, and we increasingly cultivate the things that please God. Sacrificial service to others, humility, a willingness to forgive those who wrong us, uh, increasing self-control and purity, a disciplined life of prayer, a commitment to the advancement of the kingdom. 
These are the things that we increasingly put on as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that practically? Miss just four ways very quickly. Number one, pray for those things that, pray for those areas where you know and God's showing you you need to grow. You, you see there's a pattern of sin in your life or there's a virtue that needs to be developed. Pray that the Holy Spirit would form that in you more and more, trusting that he will. Number two, if you identify a specific area where you need to grow, take a concrete step to grow in that area. For instance, if you're struggling with selfishness, think about how you could serve others. Maybe stay at work a little longer to help a coworker. Well, we tend to be very strategic and intentional and specific about areas of life that we care about, don't we? We have plans, we have charts. What about the cultivation of your character? Are you equally intentional there? Identify areas where you need to grow and identify specific steps that with the blessing of the Lord can help you grow in those areas. Three, you're not going to grow in holiness if you don't spend time in the presence of a holy God. The thing that drives holiness is ultimately a love for the Lord. And you don't get that kind of delight in Christ if you don't spend time in his presence, uh, praying, pouring out your heart to him, listening to his word. There's no substitute for communion with the Lord. And fourth, find people who are holy. Maybe it sounds a little strange and archaic, doesn't it? Holy people. We should use that language, though, because it's biblical. Find people who are walking the way Jesus would have them and spend time with them. Have you ever noticed when you spend time with someone who really loves Jesus, um, it's infectious? makes you want to love Jesus more? Spend time with people who are walking with the Lord. But the right way to prepare for the return of Jesus is by growing in holiness and godliness. Secondly, the right, way, the right way to prepare for that day is to long for it. Verse 12, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God. And then in verse 13, again, we're told, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not just preparing spiritually for that day, but we are also longing for it. We are looking forward to it, and we are anticipating, in it, uh, anticipating it and delighting in it. Now, why are we doing that? We, we, Peter has already said this is a day of judgment. This is a day of upheaval. Why are we looking forward to this day? Well, because for the believer, this is not a day of con condemnation. This is a day where every heart's desire, every good heart's desire will come to fruition. Yes, this is a day of judgment and condemnation for the wicked, but the other side of the coin in verse 13 is that this is also a day when God will establish new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Everything will be made new. Now, you may have been wondering, as I've worked through this passage, this language of a fire burning everything up, and now we're talking about a new heavens and a new earth, does this mean that God is going to replace this old creation with a new creation. So no continuity between the old and the new. One is taken away and replaced with something else. If you had just this passage to go on, you might think that. But there's another possibility, in fact, this is what the Bible teaches, that there is a continuity between this old heaven and old earth and the new heaven and new earth. It's not so much that the old heaven and old earth are replaced, they are renewed and transformed. We see this, for example, in Romans chapter 8, where Paul uh, writes, uh, verse 20 and 21, the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The picture here is that this old creation will be liberated, transformed, and experience the kind of liberty that we will experience as God's children. That's an encouraging thought. There's a lot about even this fallen, wretched world that our hearts love. Sedona for me, for instance. Hikes when the sun is going down, you get those long shadows on the rocks. There's a lot to, to love even about this fallen creation. Guess what? God loves it. And he's not going to completely dispense with it. He's going to fix it, heal it, and restore it. Spoiler alert for, for children who might read the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, look away. Um, at the end of the Narnia books, the children see this massive catastrophe where old Narnia is wiped out. The place that they loved, that they called home, that was their true home, is no longer there. But then a new world is created, and it's delightful, and they're exploring it, and they're experiencing all the beautiful things that this new world has to offer, and then it gradually dawns on them, wait a minute, all of the things that we loved about the old Narnia have been carried over and preserved. This is Narnia, but it's improved. And all of the things that we caught glimpses of are here in their fullness and finality. I think that something like that is the biblical picture. Not replacement, but renewal. So Sedona won't be irrevocably lost, if I can put it that way. <laughs> it will be purged of this new age uh, activities. Though That will burn. But the things that we love, there's, a, there's some kind of continuity, and that's a source of encouragement if you think like me. It's amazing to think about the fact that there's these new heavens and new earth. When you consider just the dizzying array of pleasures that exist now, jam on freshly baked bread, hot tea on a cold day, the smell of orange blossoms in spring, candlelit dinners, Rain in July, moonlit nights, the deep purple blossoms on the jacaranda tree, you know, sunset hikes, the ocean, the sound of the waves crashing. All of these pleasures, this kaleidoscope of pleasures, are here in a fallen world. What will it be like to taste in its undiluted form created pleasures? Pleasures that are not in any way diluted by sin as they are here. What is it going to be like to eat in an unfallen world as an unfallen creature? I don't know, but it will be great. That world is coming. And it's a world where righteousness dwells. In this world, in a sense, evil is at home. We read the newspapers and we see all the atrocities and terrible things that happen all around us. But in the world to come, righteousness, goodness will be at home. Peter has emphasized the, the judgment aspect connected to Christ's return. But there's another side to this, right? On the one hand, we want to tell people to believe in Jesus and be saved from the wrath to come. But those who refuse to repent and submit to Jesus, the biblical perspective is that it's right and good that God's judgment should fall on them. Judgment on the wicked means relief for everybody else. Should God allow the world to continue to be tyrannized by evil people on and on forever and ever? The judgment of the wicked means relief for the righteous. That's the perspective of Scripture, uh, old and new. 
This is going to be a world untainted by evil and wicked people. You won't have to lock your doors at night. Be a, a world of peace and safety. Revelation 22, 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, that is the New Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In that world, nothing unclean or detestable. Suffering will come to an end. Isaiah 65, verse 17 and following. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. In that future world, everything will be made new. There will be no more tears, sadness, and sorrow. There will be no more wickedness. And we will, in fact, be perfected. The sin that remains in us will be decisively wiped away, and we will experience harmonious, perfect relationships, not only with God, but with everybody else. What a relief. In this life, to maintain positive relationships with people, you really have to put your back into it, don't you? You have to forgive and apologize and be careful what you say. And there's every opportunity at every corner to upset someone or be upset. You have to work hard to maintain harmonious relationships. But then you won't have to work hard. Because you won't be prideful and selfish anymore, neither will they. We will relate to each other the way that we were meant to relate to each other. And the best thing of all, the new heavens and new earth, is that's where God is. We get glimpses of his majesty and glory in this life, but then we will see his majesty and all of its radiance, undiluted. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And that new heavens and new earth, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God will dwell in the midst of his people. That image that we get with the temple of God dwelling in the midst of his people, that will come to its climactic conclusion. God will dwell in our midst in paradise and we will see him as he is. That's where your life is headed if you believe in Jesus. That is what your future looks like. And as you contemplate that, it should bring relief to your heart. You should breathe a sigh of relief. It should teach you not to hold on so tightly to the things of this world. So what if things didn't quite work out the way you might have hoped? So what if there are disappointment and lo- disappointments and losses? Uh, this world, this life, is not your only chance to experience the pleasures of God. There's a better world coming. You don't need to squeeze every drop of pleasure and every experience from this life as those who have no hope in the world to come. You can hold things loosely. There's a better world coming. And one indication that you're hoping in that future world is that you're content. You're not always inwardly restless about what other people have and you don't have. If you're living with this hope in view, you're content with the life God has given you. There's a peace knowing that this better world is coming. Jesus is coming back, and Scripture teaches us today that we prepare for his return by walking in holiness and by setting our sights on what will be, and living in light of that reality. May God help us to do so more and more. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be hypnotized by the familiar rhythms of life. Instead, Lord, by faith, we pray that you would help us to soberly behold the reality of your son's return when this present age will pass away, a new heavens and a new earth will come. Please, Father, work in us so that we are walking in increasing purity and holiness, increasing obedience. Uh, please grant us to be a people characterized by joy and cheerfulness as we set our hope not on this world with its transient pleasures and troubles, but on the world to come. Father, thank you that you've done all this for us. Thank you for your kindness to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Melt our hearts with your goodness and grant us to walk in light of these things. Amen.